Hello, I'm John Matham, and this is PageCast, brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. Today, uh, we're talking about a book and a subject, Forgiveness. The book's title is Forgiveness and Exploration, and I'm joined now by the author, Marina Cantacuzino. Marina, hello. Hello. Hello from London. When Before I read the book, the sort of first question that was floating around in my mind that I would ask you was, what are we talking about? What is forgiveness? But now having read the book, I understand how, how naughty a problem this is. Yeah. Forgiveness is not easy to define in, in the context in which you write about it in the book. It isn't. And whole books have been written about the meaning of forgiveness. And I was trying to get away from that, really, and doing writing more about the experience of forgiveness. But if I'm pressed, um, I do have a sort of working definition for myself. I think forgiveness for me is making peace with things or with people that you can't change. And that speaks to the very important letting go and acceptance part of forgiveness. But what it doesn't include and is the vital ingredient is an element of compassion and empathy for the person who's hurt you. And that's the difficult part. So sometimes I think about the wonderful quote that is attributed to Mark Twain, that forgiveness is the fragrance that the violet sheds on the heel that crushes it. And the reason that works for me is it shows that forgiveness comes out of damage that it's messy, but it's also potentially a healing balm. Um, and and the only other thing that I would say about um, definitions and what is forgiveness is that I heard Dr. Fred Luskin, who's an academic who's written you know loads of books about forgiveness, and he was asked once, what's your def- definition? He says, I've ditched a lot of them. I just use the word freedom now. Um, and I found that quite liberating in itself. And to, to what extent is, is freedom within one's conscious ability to decide on? Uh, it's easy to say, I forgive, and you might mean it intentionally at, at a kind of intellectual level. But I, I sort of wonder whether that decision to forgive or not to give or to forgive in the fullness of that concept is is something that you can decide or whether it arises irresistibly in you? What do you think? Yeah, I think, well, it's obviously, I think it depends and it's personal. And it can be, if it's a decision, it will be something you line yourself up for. It will be an intention. And that may take a long time coming and you may experiment with different ways of doing it. But many people, the reason why someone might want to forgive is that they've tried other ways of dealing with their pain and that none of those ways are working and that they are therefore inspired to consider what forgiveness might feel like and look like. Others do very rarely, I would say, in my experience of talking to people, the many people I've talked to, but some do find it a sort of spontaneous, instant um feeling uh, emotion that that relates to forgiveness that is part of their own personal healing it just makes perfect sense to them they are drawn towards empathy as a response to pain 
You make the point early in the book, Marina, and you make it several times more during the book that forgiveness is not something that anybody can expect from or demand from a hurt, a wronged person. That that notion of you must forgive, you should forgive, it would be better for you if you did forgive, okay. is yeah. is part of the reason why some people are very, um, very nervous about this forgiveness yeah. discussion. Yeah. Yes, and I've always totally understood that. And very early on, when I started collecting stories that led to the Forgiveness Project charity that I started and was interviewing people, I was talking to a former paramilitary from Northern Ireland, and he said, I'll only talk to you if you promise me um, that the stories you share don't present forgiveness as an imperative, because that simply will re-victimise victims. And I hadn't quite thought about it. In, I think I was at the early stages and I was still sort of amazed by these extraordinary people who'd suffered terribly and yet had, had found a, a way to, forget, to forgive. And I thought, no, that he's absolutely right. And from that moment on, that became a sort of driving force in a way to to reframe forgiveness, to to unpick it, to dissect it, to look at it, but never to present it as something just for the morally strong or the spiritually superior, something that can be refused, something that isn't always appropriate, something that can sometimes be be damaging to people. The reality of forgiveness, that's really what I wanted to present alongside the obviously showcasing, in a way, examples where people had recovered from you know a terrible thing that had happened in their life and caused them utmost pain through forgiving and how does that happen and why does that happen so the whole big mess of it basically i wanted to look at perhaps now we should go back to the beginning and and what attracted you to the concept of forgiveness and the f word exhibition which continues in in various forms around the world and the forgiveness project and the books mm. about forgiveness is there a is there sort of a an obvious spark moment that you can look back on or was it a a gradual realization that this would be something interesting for you as a journalist as a commentator to explore there was definitely a spark moment in that um, I never sort of really planned to start the Forgiveness Project or to spend like nearly 20 years of my life thinking about it. But what happened was the Iraq war, the Iraq war, uh, the invasion of Iraq rather was um, an act of revenge for 9-11. And the language at the time was very bellicose, very angry about tit-for-tat payback. If you're not with us, you're against us. And it just, it made no sense to me. It politicised me in a way, that war, because I thought, I didn't understand why they would do that. Um, why, the harder you go down, you come down on people, the more they regroup and re-emerge in a more resistant and angry way. And I just saw it creating more problems. And I wasn't, didn't like many people, didn't feel listened to, went on the protest march. And I think the forgiveness, my work in forgiveness grew out of anger in a way, um, and anger at the injustice of, of not considering other methods of dealing with with um, the harm. 
And so I started looking and I was doing some traveling, including in South Africa, for my work as a journalist with a photographer. And I just said to him, why don't we just see if we can collect stories which are in a way uh, provide a counter narrative to the one at the time. And that meant interviewing and him photographing people who had experienced pain, harm, abuse, atrocity, um, but who hadn't sought revenge and, and had drawn a line under the dogma of vengeance and had embraced forgiveness or maybe compassion, empathy, reconciled possibly with the person who hurt them or certainly reconciled within themselves. And also I wanted to talk to former perpetrators who had transformed their aggression into a force for peace now because I wanted to understand why and how that happened. And so over the course of a year, we collected these stories. I didn't know what would happen to them. I thought maybe an exhibition at best, an article perhaps. Uh, and indeed it was an exhibition. Um, it was funded by Anita Roddick, who's was um, she's dead now, but she's a social activist, body shop founder. Yeah. I'm sure you have that in yep. South Africa. And she said these stories, she read the raw materials, said you've got to do something with them. And she gave us a bit of money to put it on as an exhibition in 2004. And it was called the F Word Exhibition. And I thought my life would just go back to journalism. I thought it was just another little or oh, big project that I was doing along the way. But it was just phenomenally successful. So many people came. So many people were interested. All the storytellers, and there was 26 of them that I collected their stories from, said, what are you going to do more with our stories? How can we help? And out of that, the Forgiveness Project charity was born. And I'd met Desmond Tutu in South Africa when I came in 2000, 2003. And he was really supportive. Um, and he became a founding patron, actually. And that's how the charity started, of which the book is an articulation of the work, you know, nearly 20 years later. Uh, you mentioned there the, the Iraq war and the impact that it had on you. I happened to be on air broadcasting as the planes were yeah. flying into the World Trade Center in, oh. in New York 21 years ago, almost exactly 21 yeah. years ago. And I remember yes. saying that what is going to happen is that America is going to react and it's going to react with force and it's going to react with maximum force. And I understand why they are going to do that. And I know that many people will support them doing that. Most Americans will support them doing that. But I wondered out aloud, what if instead of reacting with force, they said we disagree with what's being done, but we kind of understand why it's being done. And all the energy and all the resources that they put into the military response, put it into Middle, Middle East peace, put pressure oh. on Israel's allies, on Palestine's allies, and, and really work incredibly hard and spend a lot of money finding a if it's possible, work, workable solution for that age-old yeah. conflict. Of course, we'll never know whether that would have led to something different, but I think it's, it's impossible yeah. to argue against the reality that what they did has made things worse, not better. Yes, I think now, and that is more or less accepted, I think, uh, many years later. Um, and I, I wonder, I mean, I was talking to someone yesterday who was in a, an American living in London, but she happened to be in America at the time, and she just said... The, the, the opinion that you've just shared was not able to be really spoken, even though some people felt it. There was such a shock at what had happened that people just 
often revenge is the default position that you go to and it feels better and it feels just and it feels right at the time and and somehow she said americans just got stuck with that um but so many now regret it it's history isn't it reading all the stories of of the extraordinary people who have forgiven and the freedom and light that has granted their souls and i was trying to work out as i was reading through the book is is there a factor which is common to all of them and it was very difficult to to isolate because all kinds of people forgive and all kinds of people don't forgive so from yeah. from from the inside is is it obvious to you what sort of people choose to forgive and what sort of people choose not to um it's hard for me to say because i'd say my evidence you know i'm not a academic researcher um it's anecdotal in many ways the people i've spoken to but the what i would say from the many people I have interviewed over the years is that those who forgive are able to to open up their curiosity about the other now how they're able to and others aren't that is a hard one to answer but somehow i think forgiveness starts with curiosity because if you have very black and white way of thinking of the world you you don't open up to asking the question why um and you have to ask the question why to even begin to forgive because the as i said at the beginning it requires this degree of empathy and compassion for the person who's hurt you which is easy to understand in s- smaller grievances and grudges that we all have in our life every day with loved ones but very hard to understand when it's someone who's committed a terrible wrong to you um so it's a diff- i find that question quite difficult i mean there's some research to say that people who are in and this is to do with nurture people who are invested in um get a, being agreeable they use that word in the research agreeable as opposed mm. to neurotic <laughs> these <laughs> okay. two de- definitions it's like dividing the world into the agreeable people and the neurotic people but it's much more complex than that the neurotic people tend to be more anxious and more prone to depression the agreeable people are invested in making re- mending relationships and making them better and those are much more likely to forgive obviously women are slightly more likely to forgive than men older people more likely to forgive than younger people um and this is all research that's been done into forgiveness but as you rightly said um it's hard to see exactly why some people forgive and some people don't all i would say is that it does can take decades to reach that place the season of anger is often a very important part of it a couple of stories um in in the early 1980s um i was working as an actor and i did a play which was very critical of national service military conscription which we had at the time and that was a in the early 80s that was a very difficult and quite dangerous position to put forward that conscription was obscene and evil and we did a play which which centered that as as the sort of narrative hook and one evening after well actually after the last performance of the play i was um, encountered by three men in the parking lot of the theater and i was physically assaulted quite badly a broken bones and and so on yeah. and 
15, 16, 17 years later, I was on the radio and I was doing a a program around military service and and how people who'd gone through it willingly or unwillingly, what levels of PTSD were associated with and so on. And I got a phone call from somebody who said, do you remember the night that you were assaulted in the parking lot at the Baxter Theatre? And I said, strangely enough, I do remember that. And he said, I was one of them. And they oh, were with wow. military intelligence, and they had been instructed to go and damage one of the actors to okay. just show how um, how uh, okay. unwanted this was. And he said to me, do you forgive me? And I, I didn't have time to think about it. I just said, no, but I don't think it's my role to forgive you. If you forgive yourself, then I'm very mm. comfortable with that. Mm. And a couple of weeks mm. ago, I was interviewing Judge Albie Sachs, who, whose story yes. you will know well, for uh, the University of Cape Town's YouTube channel. And he was telling me about the man who set the bomb, which blew off Albie's right arm and damaged his sight and so on. And this man made an appointment to see him at the Constitutional Court when uh, Albie was on the bench. And at the end of a a conversation, which Albie said was was difficult but interesting, the man said, will you shake my hand? And Albie said to him, no, you need to go to the TRC. And if you tell the truth at the TRC, then I will shake your hand. So the man went to the TRC, told the truth, was granted amnesty, met Albie at a at a premiere of the film about Albie's diary, The Soft Vengeance of a Freedom Fighter. And Albie shook his hand, and then the man said, do you forgive me? And I was amazed that Albie said exactly the same thing that I'd said. He said to this man, forgive yourself. That's all that matters. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, Mm. how does that fit into the notion of forgiveness? Yeah, I'm I'm interested by that. I'm interested, first of all, that the ask, it wasn't preceded by... An apology, or to, or was it? Well, in in my case, um, he said something yeah. lines of, "I wish I hadn't done that," but we were. I'm yeah. sure you know how brainwashed we all were. Yes, but, yes. Uh, but I think having listened to you a little earlier, I, d- I didn't feel pain and anger about it. So you know, yeah. if if but you fig- didn't, if fig- what did forgiveness maybe meant for you meant like condoning it or in some way? Yeah, it's ex- just. I, I remembered it, but it didn't cause me lasting distress. Yeah. So f- having listened to you talk about forgiveness um, and that terrible pain, having been wounded, having been horribly wronged, I didn't feel terribly yeah. wounded, horribly wronged. So forgiveness seemed seemed too big and noble an act to attach to yeah. something that I hadn't forgotten about but didn't have lasting impact on me. Yes, yeah, so that, that, that feels very real, and I think you're – moving straight away and it sounds like you did it rather spontaneously mm. found yourself saying it almost about the the self-forgiveness was an act of compassion from from you and also from alby because not forgiving yourself can um feelings of self-loathing and blame can really maroon people in their lives and and exacerbate you know, feeling more feelings of self-loathing and self-destructive behaviour, and that can seep out into other relationships. So, self-forgiveness was something that one's done, that one regrets, and clearly these people did. That uh, is lodged in your DNA almost to be a, to be to forgive yourself for that. I think is probably the most helpful thing you can do, because we all like to be seen psychologically morally sound um 
and to be given permission for that. I think you gave permission, actually, by saying that. Mm. And I think that was very generous. Yes, it's, uh, we've, we've spoken about an act of forgiveness, but equally yeah. difficult or equally problematic is accepting forgiveness, which is the obvious other side of the coin of I forgive you. How, how mm. do I, as the, the, the wronger, the person who did the harm, the person who murdered your son, the person who got drunk and drove a car, which killed your, your daughter, whatever the case may be, mm. that's also complicated, that acceptance yes. of it. Well, yes, and in the book, I um, mentioned the story of Jin Furi and yep. Lapa Mephaleli, um, who some will be aware of. Um, Lin Furi's daughter was killed in the Heidelberg bombings, and Lapa was the director of operations of APLA and therefore responsible, masterminded the whole thing, and they eventually met. And at Lapa, I've, I've interviewed him for a podcast I made, actually, and I've interviewed him for the Forgiveness Project and Jin, obviously. But Lapa is very interesting about that, about how he he finds forgiveness really difficult because it means he has a debt to pay. He always has a debt to pay. And is he worthy of forgiveness? And And... It's a very, very hard thing to be forgiven, he says. And I thought it was an interesting perspective. And I know that also from Dr. Manwar Ali, who was a, he's now a scholar over here in the UK, but he was um, a jihadist in Afghanistan. And he he doesn't like, he doesn't believe in forgiving himself and doesn't believe he deserves forgiveness because he works with other young men who might be radicalised or have done things um, to do with extremism. And he says, if it's all washed away and cleansed, how do I carry on helping others make reparation? So I can't forgive myself and, and I don't deserve forgiveness. Conversely, Someone called Arno Michaelis, who's a former white supremacist, who does similar work around Nazi young men being driven to be racist and, and to move towards white supremacism. He says, if I didn't forgive myself, I wouldn't be able to do this work because I'd have no self-esteem. So I find it very interesting how different people, there's no right or wrong, you know, in that. It's just that different people can... Um, different people respond differently to the the harm in their lives the harm they've done or the harm that's been done to them and they find a way through and i'm i'm interested in the ways through mm. so you, you um you quote julian slovo's unhappiness at um, aspects of the trc where essentially yeah. uh, the people who had been wronged who had had human rights abuses associated with with their lives either directly on them or to to family members how there was a there was an attempt to force is probably too strong a word but to incline them towards forgiveness and i spent a lot of time as a journalist covering the truth and reconciliation commission and it was something that sat uneasily with me as well because when the two people involved met each other and sometimes it had been prefigured, there'd been meetings before the sort of public meeting at the TRC. 
um, sometimes it appeared completely spontaneous that, 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 yeah. that there was a forgiveness and an acceptance of forgiveness. But when, when somebody clearly wanted to be anywhere else at that time but in the spotlight, being urged to forgive, it's, and, and it goes back to some, the point that you, you made earlier, but it's, I think it's important to stress it's an individual decision. It mm. cannot be compelled by yeah. your society, uh, by law, by your religion, by your faith, by your sense of spirituality. It must yeah. rise from inside. I, I absolutely agree. And if in a political setting like the TRC it ever feels coerced in any way, it takes the power away and and then people don't trust the process. So I, I recognise what you're saying and I've heard about that. And I did actually meet one of the architects of the TRC in 2003 and he told me that at one time he said, we considered making forgiveness mandatory, Oof. but then we saw sense. So I think you're, what, you're, what you're talking about is the sort of leftover of that. It was, certainly wasn't mandatory, how could it ever be? But there was a sense of obligation. And I think if you put, from some obviously, and I think... If you put obligation anywhere near forgiveness, it becomes a tyranny. Um, so it's very, very complex. We mostly we we've talked about um, harms in the in the political sense within um, civil war, political conflict, that that kind of thing, and and we've also talked about really you know murder and things of of that degree yeah. of seriousness but there are other kinds of forgiveness as well forgiveness within relationships forgiveness within families where the hurt is is still strongly felt but not of the egregious nature as in wiping somebody out as a drunken driver or setting a bomb or knifing somebody in in, in a in a fit of racist rage and and that's also that that interpersonal forgiveness is also yeah. a very difficult terrain to navigate within within a family within a couple's relationship. It is. Um, I I I think forgiveness is really like the oil of personal relationships and intimate relationships. Families so easily fracture, friendships fall apart, people fall out with people, they have unresolved issues that can be passed on to generations. And I think we all know so many people, including ourselves possibly, have fallen out and can't reconcile and feel angry and upset at things that have been done or things we've done. But I think, you know, if forgiveness was more part of our emotional vocabulary, possibly it wouldn't be such an enduring aspect of human relationships and I do think um, the poet David White the British poet says um, all um, all long-lasting friendships are based on continued and mutual forgiveness and he sees that and you know that's in a way why I call that chapter in the book the oil of personal relationships because yeah. I think if you can have a forgiving lens on things and this goes back to how some people are able to do that and others not but if you can you're going to have better relationships throughout your life you're going to be happier and all the research bears this out so I think for me I see forgiveness as a kind of personal reckoning where you can make peace with unresolved issues 
you know, that's to do with the painful residue from the past. And that's whether you're forgiving the murder of a child or a sibling having stolen your mother's furniture. I think it's, it's, I, I tend to be very, very nuanced about forgiveness, but when it comes to our own relationships, I think, when I say nuanced, I mean equivocal. I, I, I like its choice, but sometimes I think people don't even entertain forgiveness in our personal relationships. And and it's why we we fall out so easily with each other. Marine, it really is an, an, an exceptional book. It is one of those books which gives a, a deep and profound pleasure to read. And um, when I'm reading a book, I dog-ear pages because I might want to refer to those pages and I'm showing it to the people in the studio with me and they can see how dog-eared this book is because on almost every page there is a quote from somebody else or something you've written that just deserve to be to be savoured um, in a huge way. So, I mean, it's an absolutely fabulous book and not in the book, but I'm going to ask it and see what your yeah. answer is. At the moment, while I'm while you and I are chatting in the in the radio studio, we have a television which is obviously tuned to the procession which is underway mm. ahead of the Queen being put in her final resting place. And, and there's been mm. a lot of chat on our radio station and around the world about saying sorry and forgiveness around um, colonization, empire, and what mm. that did. Prince now, King Charles, came as close, I think, as any royal has done in living memory at the Commonwealth um, Conference in Kigali recently where he spoke about the terrible harms of slavery. Um, mm -hmm. is, is there a way of resolving those, those feelings between those who were colonized, those who were part of the extractive empire and those who are the remnants of power of that extractive empire? Um, I think key to it is in a way what you you know that you just described King Charles Prince then what what he said and did and the royal family have done a bit of that and they've done it in Ireland and the Catholic you know the Pope went to Canada recently apologised for the what the church did there to the aboriginals and that all went some way towards making people feel heard i think omission not having something recognized not having something acknowledged let's forget apology for a minute let's just talk about acknowledgement omission of that is a form of oppression and therefore for that to be um for something, for someone like the Pope, let's just take that as an example, who went very recently to Canada and finally apologised for what had happened. It went a long way with people who had been asking and demanding it for decades. And it helped people and it healed people. And it was recognised and it will now be in the history books. And people felt heard and witnessed, but it doesn't go as far as reparations. And a lot of people want reparations. But I think acknowledgement is is vital. And um, Elizabeth Eckford, who is one of the little Rock Nine students, she said true reconciliation can only come through honest um, acknowledgement 
of our pain and our shared past. Honest acknowledgement of our pain and our shared past. And that's the first step. And so often that doesn't happen. But what you're describing, um, let's talk about South Africa. I don't know if it's ever happened with South Africa. Has it? Not in any, what I would regard as meaningful way, no. Mm. No. And whether it might in the future, I think it goes some way. Um, and it happened with in Australia as well with the Sorry Day and the big apology that Kevin Rudd, Rudd gave. But then again, no, no reparations. And I think that then people get angry because reparations are possible. They do happen. They happened after the Second World War. Um, so it's very difficult. But I'm a great believer in acknowledgement as, as a, a big step towards healing. A necessary first step towards and, healing. Yeah. Now. yeah, and accountability. I've been talking to Marina Cantacuzino, author of Forgiveness and Expiration. And if you're a member of a book club, get it for the book club. Um, you're going to struggle to get it back from people because they want to, going to want to keep it and keep referring to it. And buy it, read it, think about it. And perhaps there's a not a handbook as such, because these are, as Marina and I have been discussing, these are uh, very personal things. But there, there are... There are ways of moving yourself towards forgiveness and forgiveness in a way which has a mutually beneficial effect, which are at the back of the book and worth reading as well. Marina, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much.